in uh, uh, Genesis, uh, beginning chapter 29. And uh, last week we were looking at uh, uh, chapter 28 and uh, the whole story there about Jacob's uh, dream and uh, his response to that dream. And, uh, and today we'll pick it up as he goes on uh, further in his, uh, in his journey. So, uh, so uh, as we usually do, let's go back and spend a few moments uh, just reflecting on where we were last week and the things that we talked about as Jacob sets out from Beersheba and uh, heads north to... Uh, Paid narrative. What do you remember from our discussion last week? One of the things that really encouraged me was God's answer to us, even when when we get discouraged. He tells him that He will be with him, that He will He will not leave him until He completes the promises. And I think that's really an encouragement when we get discouraged to know that that God is with us. It's easy to lose sight of that, isn't it? Yet we get so wrapped up trying to solve our problems and you know, and dealing with the here and the now and the temporal and the material that that oftentimes we just forget his presence and man, that's that's everything. <laughs> it really is everything. Sure. He thought it was out in the middle of nowhere it turned out to be Yeah. Well, uh, yes, it's really startling, and I, and I suppose we've all had experiences like that at times when we're just kind of going along in life and just kind of thinking, you know, everything's just kind of mundane and ordinary, and all of a sudden, bam, you realize God is just right smack in the middle of it, and He's doing something, and you know, and uh, and I like that, that you know, the verse that always sticks out to me there, where He says, you know, the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. <laughs> Really, pretty striking experience for him. Well, not almost like God always did, but everybody else left out with a whole load of stuff. Yeah. And he didn't seem to have much. Yeah. And, you know, kind of God's way of saying, look, I'm going to take care of this. Yeah. You're dependent on me now. You know, I, I thought some more about that. We talked a little bit about that last week. Well, you know, why did his dad send him off like that? I mean, which one of us would have spent our son off on a trip like that with almost nothing, you know? And uh, we talked about that. We talked about just being God's providence and, and, and perhaps just the haste with which everything fell into place or whatever. But, you know, as I thought about more about that this week, I thought, well, maybe Isaac was smarter than I'm giving him credit for. Maybe he, maybe he knew that's what Jacob needed. <laughs> maybe he realized Jacob needed to needed to go through the school hard knocks or something. So I don't know. Maybe Isaac uh, maybe Isaac did that on purpose. I, I don't know, but it, that, that's a thought that crossed my mind that that uh, there are times I think when we as parents when we need to pull back a little bit and let our children kind of you know tough it out on their own and experience a little bit of the reality of life on their own if they're ever going to learn something they learn. Maybe maybe Isaac saw that in Jacob. I don't know. 
There's your answer for uh, Jeremiah's. Yeah, yeah. Well, I let him talk that out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm inclined to go that way. This is on tape and she'll hear that. <laughs> Not when there's a grand bed <laughs> Well, having this, I think you guys talk about the, uh, the parents. I, I don't know if you went back to or started er- earlier where he saw was apparently unaware that him marrying these other women displeased his father. And the fact that when uh, his brother went off, he, he realized it apparently. Mm-hmm. You would think that you know, Isaac would have said something or he would have known or Esau would have seen it or, you know, somebody would have said something up until You know, the overall picture that I get of Esau and some commentators bring this out too is that that uh, Esau doesn't always seem to be operating on all these cylinders. <laughs> he seems to be a little dense. And, and I don't know if we mentioned last week or we might have mentioned the week before that that he he doesn't really seem to be aware that his parents really are on this issue. They really are on the same page. And I think he's, he's just enjoyed his father's favoritism so much and, and things that he's seen... He's seen the differences between dad and mom. He's seen the he's seen the conflicts between dad and mom, and so I think he's really kind of oblivious to the fact that on this issue of who they marry, they really share the same value. And uh, and I think he was oblivious to that apparently, and uh, for whatever reason I don't know what the reason was, but he certainly gets his eyes open here. And well, the fact that apparently didn't not said anything. Uh, apparently not. Yeah, at least not. Not sufficiently enough to get his attention. Yet. Well, there's. Well, I was thinking about that. There's a guy at work who uh, is the golden boy or the fair-haired child. You know, those euphemisms to mean he can do no wrong. Uh, and everybody else looks around and says, "Why? You know, why this guy do this thing? Anybody else would have been thrown under the bus, and this guy he does it, and nothing, nothing seems to happen." And so when he saw with Isaac, he was kind of that way. Yeah. You know, he did this thing, and so Isaac didn't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's probably a lot of what's going on. Anything else? I prefer to think of that as thick skin. Oh, he thought, well, then that may be it too, yeah. Yeah. Just voicing it, perhaps, badly. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's actually it's actually uh, the way typically a vowel might be expressed, but it is but it is clear that it stipulates here that it is a vowel. So he so he's not really negotiating with God. It's it is it is a really the vowel is kind of an expression of uh, it's a it's a vehicle of worship and of recognition of God's provision and God's care, and that in light of God's care and God's provision, I will do thus and so. And so we uh, cited at least one or two examples last week. One of them, a classical one, of course, is Hannah's vow, where she says, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And that, of course, is, uh, is uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And, uh, and, of course, we're not critical of, of Hannah for the vow that she makes uh, in that circumstance. We recognize what she is doing there is acknowledging her dependence of God, on God and expressing to God her the, the freedom and the gladness with which she'll give her son back if God will give her a son. And uh, and so we need to see this, I think we need to see this vow of Jacob in the same light, that he's not, he's not bargaining or negotiating strictly with God, but what he's saying is, God, since you are doing these things for me, uh, because you are doing these things for me, I will respond in this way to you. And it's really, in one sense, an act of worship. But that's a little maturity, too. I mean, he's just now experiencing God. And a lot of times when you first come to God, it's all you know is God to keep me out of saving yeah. And uh, as you mature, even though I still do it, saving from this mess, we are be more mature and whatever, you know, more just God saving <coughs> committing to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is. Uh, I think that is uh, clearly uh, some of what's going on here. And of course, we talked last week too about the uh, about the, the idea of. of uh, crisis moments in our life versus the kind of the ongoing time. We talk about crisis and chronos. And we talk about how we have these kind of crisis moments or we have these turning point moments in our life. And then we have the day-to-day going on from that point on. And, uh, and what we had last week was the crisis moment. We had the turning point. We have this kind of earth-shaking event in the life of Jacob where he, for the first time, has his own personal encounter with God. Now, from that point on, for the next number of years, he's going to have no obvious encounter with God. No obvious interaction with God. And what's, what's happening now over the next 20 years is, is the experience of Bethel and the commitments of Bethel are now going to be kind of worked out in the everyday of his life. Okay. And the point, is, the point is, is that we have these transforming moments. We have these crisis moments or these turning points in our life where we have these dramatic encounters with God and we probably all have them. But they don't really make us what we need to be. It's it's the chronos time. It's the long time. It's the mundane every day after those times that really take those crisis moments and make them part of our character. Take the things that we learned and the things that we experienced in those crisis moments and make them part of our character. And what we like to think is that we can, you know, we can have a crisis encounter with God. We can have these striking, momentous events where God comes and speaks to us and we encounter Him. Uh, we go to a, you know, we go to a conference or we walk the aisle and go to the altar and we have this experience with God. And we like to think that we're just transformed overnight, but we aren't transformed overnight. Are we? I suppose there are a few occasions when we are, but in my experience, I've not been. 
Uh, and in my experience, and I think probably in most of our experiences, even when we have these very profound and very important Bethel experiences in our life, it's really the next 20 years that takes that Bethel experience and makes it reality. And so it's not just how I respond at that crisis moment, but it's also how am I going to respond over the next 20 years of my life that will determine whether or not that Bethel moment really turns out to be all that it had the potential to be. And that's what's going to happen as we see in the life of in the life of Jacob. So he goes forth from there, uh, and let's just read down through verse 12 in chapter 29, and then we'll pick up the story. He says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would... Uh, uh, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with their father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Now, that's one way to meet a wife, huh? Uh, so, at any rate, we pick up the story here in verse 1, and, and Jacob is, uh, says uh, he uh, went on this journey, or he continues, continued his journey, uh, literally the word means uh, the phrase there means he picked up his feet <laughs> so, so he goes on from Bethel but as we mentioned last week he goes from Bethel really with a whole different outlook okay. so he is he's no longer going as this fugitive fleeing from the wrath of his brother but now as a result of his encounter with God and the promises of God on his life and the promise for God to be with him and the anticipation of coming back to his home in safety and in peace, he now is going as a pilgrim. And it just puts his whole his whole uh, adventure over the next uh, 20 years or so, it puts it in a compl- completely different light. And we kind of, until finally he does come back and we have that encounter, that whole scene with Esau when he comes back, we kind of forget all about Esau. And we forget about uh, why he left home and, and in the first place and, and, and we begin to look at Jacob from the perspective of this guy who's going through all these experiences and how is God shaping and working in his life. So now he's no longer really, we don't view him as a fugitive as we did when he first left home, but we view him as a pilgrim and that's because of his experience or his encounter with God at Bethel. So he goes uh, uh, 
he goes uh, uh, on this journey and eventually he comes uh, uh, to Haran. And, uh, and in this, this story, as it unfolds, and we, we kind of get an interesting view of Jacob because we, we, we kind of see Jacob in, from kind of two different perspectives, or we see two different aspects of Jacob. We see some positive things about Jacob. We see some, some characteristics in Jacob that, that actually will serve him quite well over the next number of years as he serves in Laban's house. And, uh, and then also we see some areas that are perhaps less wholesome, some areas where Jacob needs to grow. And it's just illustrating this principle uh, that I just mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that just because Jacob has had this encounter with God doesn't mean he doesn't have a long way to grow yet and a lot of changes to do. And so what this next 20 years is going to be about is, is God working in the life of Jacob to make him into the kind of man he wants him to be. And for Jacob, that's going to be, in many times, a very painful, uh, a very painful process. Okay. Now, you'll notice, right off the bat, one of the first things we encounter here uh, in this story is another well. How many encounters and experiences have we had with wells so far in our story of Genesis? Wells just keep coming up over and over again. And, and it's... It, it, it's easy, I suppose, for us to maybe just to think of it kind of as a literary device here that's being used, but it is certainly uh, it certainly serves the narrator's purposes quite well. But 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 it shouldn't surprise us that we encounter wells over and over again, right? Okay, we're talking about an ancient agrarian uh, culture, and primarily we're focusing on a nomadic clan. Okay, so you know obviously wells are going to be a big deal to them. Water is a big thing, particularly in that part of the world. And so once again, a well plays a central role in in the story as it unfolds. I was going to get to that. Yeah, and you know, and I was thinking about that. Uh, I was thinking about that as I was preparing yesterday. I was thinking. We just don't have anything like that today, do we? If we could just have more wells in our culture, uh, it'd make it a lot easier for guys and girls to hook up, right? Sonic. <laughs> Sonic. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking, you know, you know maybe, maybe O'Connell's Pub, but they're closing this week, so that won't be a good place to do it. So, uh, but, but the thing that, when you, when you come to this story of the well and, and this whole story that we have here, what does it remind you of? I mean, Isaac, Abraham's never looking for Rebecca. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, clearly your mind just immediately jumps jump back to chapter 24, right? And you think about that whole uh, thing with, uh, with Abraham's servant as he's looking for a wife for, for Isaac and he finds Rebecca. And, and you just can't help but notice the similarities, right? Because there are obvious similarities. He comes to a well near here. Now, it's a different well because the well the servant came to was obviously, you know, right very close to the city. He knew he was a heron. Uh, and, uh, and it was a well that the women from the city would go out to to get water for their household. So it was obviously a well that was very close to the city. This well is, sufficient, is a sufficient distance from Heron that he's not really sure he's a heron. Okay? So this is one that's just kind of out in the field and one that's used uh, primarily for the watering of the livestock. Okay? So it is a different well, but there are all these striking similarities where he comes to the well and the woman comes to the well and it's going to be eventually his bride, you know, his wife, and and uh, 
and, and there's all this kind of intrigue and adventure and, you know, what's going to happen here between these two. And, now, so it's all very, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of parallels there. And, and, and those parallels serve a couple purposes. One is, I have no doubt that ultimately in the life of Jacob it served a purpose. I, I don't think at the moment, and it, and it seems clear from the passage, that at the moment he's experiencing these things, that he's thinking, oh, this is what happened with Dad and Mom. I don't think he's thinking that through. But I think it's inevitable that once he sat down later and thought back on what had happened, that he couldn't help but go, oh, wait a minute, you know, I remember hearing this story. My, there's a lot of similarities between what happened to me just now and, and, and what happened to Dad and Mom. And that would be important in Jacob's life because what does it show him? Okay, it shows him that God is working in his life as he had worked in his parents' lives. And so, so at whatever point that Jacob real, realizes, and as I say, I don't think he realizes it here, and I'll show you why as we go on. But at whatever point Jacob ultimately does realize it, I think he's going, wow, God really is with me. And God really is providentially directing in my life. And so... So those parallels that we see in this story, really, they are, they are directed by God because God wants to accomplish something here in the life of Jacob. But they're also directed by God so that Jacob will see that God is, in fact, in control in his life and that God is moving and God is directing and accomplishing his purpose. And if that's his purpose in these parallels in the life of Jacob, what is his purpose for us? Why does he father? Excuse me. Go ahead. What he started. Okay. He's finishing what he started. It's the same thing. But what God is trying to communicate to us is that He's in providential control in our lives. We lose sight of that. You know. So oftentimes the things that happen in our lives, we just think, well, that's just coincidence, or that's just you know the turn of circumstances, or whatever. And oftentimes it's just God, in His providence directing very carefully in the life uh, of his people. Well, now, I want you to notice, when, it's, when he comes to this well, uh, first, I, I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit there, but in verse 1 it says that he came to the land of the sons of the east. Okay. Now, that's an interesting way that Moses, as he narrates the story for us, chooses to put it. Because always up to this point, they have referred to this place either as Haran, a reference to the city, or Pehner, the, the, the area there of the city and around the city. It's always been referred to as Haran or Pehner. And here, for some reason, the narrative chooses to refer to it as the land of the peoples of the east. Why do you think he would do that? Okay, yeah. Over and over again, we've seen, in the, particularly in Genesis, but a number of places, particularly in the Old Testament, the, the East represents people away from God, or away from the presence of God. And it begins, clear back, remember the story of the Garden of Eden, you know. Uh, when Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, they go out to the East, okay? So we had it at Eden. We had it at 
uh, we had it after the flood with the story of Babel and people moving to the east. We have it with the story of Lot and Abraham when Lot and Abraham separate. Lot goes to the east. Okay, we have it in the story of Esau where Esau's going to live to the east uh, of of. Uh, of the family of promise and so so the east uh, has this symbolism okay and it, it is symbolism we don't want to conclude that people who live east of us are always away from God but it's symbolic okay it's representative I mean, we might tend to think that way living here in the Midwest but that's not really true um, and, but it is symbolic it's representative so when scripture uses that symbolism that picture it's trying to tell us something and so what we are discovering here is that Jacob has gone on his journey now and he's come to the peoples of the east. He's come to the peoples of the land of the east. He's come to the peoples who live in that area that is away from the presence of God and away from the favor of God. Now we know, because of what we just studied last week, that this is not true about Jacob, right? Jacob has with him the presence of God. God says, I'm going to be with you wherever I go. Wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. So we know that that he certainly isn't trying to tell us that Jacob has moved away from the presence of the Lord, or that Jacob has moved away from the favor of the Lord. But what it is communicating to us is that Jacob finds himself living among the peoples who live away from the presence of the Lord. And he finds himself living among the peoples who live in the land that represents being away from God's favor and away from God's presence. And, and the significance of that, or at least some of the significance of that to me as I look at that, is, is that this is where Bethel is going to become the reality, at least more so than it was before, in the life of Jacob. In other words, the things that God needs to do in the life of Jacob, and the things that God wants to do in the life of Jacob, He's not going to do them in the comfort of Beersheba. But he's going to do it in the land of the peoples of the East. He's going to begin this shaping and this training and this disciplining process in the life of Jacob through those people who really don't know God. Who really don't walk with God. Who don't love God and who don't know God's favor. I mean, they have God's favor in many ways, obviously, as all people do. Uh, but they don't recognize it and they don't realize it. Okay. And it's those people that God has chosen to use as the anvil upon which he will shape Jacob's character. Now, as Christians, we squirm at this, right? Because we think, well, we're Christians and we're better than the non-Christians, right? So we really don't have anything to learn from them, Right? But in reality, oftentimes, God uses the unbeliever in our life, doesn't he? He uses those who really don't know God and don't love God as the anvil upon which he shapes the character of the people. of He does that numerous times throughout Scripture. One neat example that I think I've just off the top of my head is... This is the story of Moses. Remember when Moses comes out of Egypt with all these children of Israel and, and he's, he, he's governing this whole people single-handedly by himself. And then he comes, uh, to, uh, comes back to uh, father-in-law's house and what does his father-in-law tell him? You can't do this. You know, come on. Moses, you're being ridiculous here. 
You can't govern two million people by yourself. You need to appoint these men, etc. Okay? There's no indication that Jethro was a believer at all. Now, he is a father-in-law, so you know, speaking as a father-in-law, you ought to listen. Yeah. But, but he is a father-in-law, but he, there's no indication that he's a believer. But God speaks through him and gives Moses the wisdom that he needs to structure the governing of Israel the way it needs to be structured. And he carries that structure for many, many years. And and, and you can go on another classic example you think of where God is using unbelievers is the story of Peter in Caiaphas' house. Remember that? During the trial? And there's Peter and he's, he's totally away from all support, all the believers, if you will, the other disciples. He's away from them and, and you know, it's just he and John. Apparently he and John have gotten separated and he's there and he's not doing too well. And God brings that little servant girl into his life and hammers away at Peter's character to reveal and show to Peter what he's really like so that he can change. And so sometimes God uses in our lives those people who don't even know God or love God or understand God or even understand spiritual principles. And it's a mark, I think, of humility if we in those circumstances can go, okay, God, you're trying to teach me something. You're, you know, I, I, I realize these people don't know you, they don't love you, you know, and maybe even what they're doing in relationship to me is unrighteous or wicked. But, but there are things in my character you're trying to reveal. There are things in my life that you're trying to shape and mold and make. And, and if we can learn from those, then, then a great thing has been accomplished in our life by God's hand. So anyway, he goes off to the land of East and he comes to this well and we are, uh, uh, we are then confronted with all these uh, parallels and similarities and contrasts with the earlier situation in chapter 24. So he comes to this well and as, he, as he's walking along the road or whatever, he looks over in the field and he sees this well and something strikes him as unusual about the circumstance. And so what is it? Okay. And? I mean, there are times when sheep do that, right? It's the wrong time. Okay. It's the middle of the day. Now, how does Jacob know that this isn't, that there's something wrong with this picture? He knows how to raise sheep. He comes. He comes from a family that raises livestock and sheep and camels and things like that. He knows how this business is going to be run, okay? And he looks out there in the field and he sees this well and he sees these three separate flocks of sheep with their attending shepherds, whether there were three or however many of them, we don't know. But with the attendant shepherds are there and he looks over there and they're just not doing it right. You ever been that way? You know, you, you know, you know a job. You know, you know a way a certain thing is supposed to be done, and you look and you see somebody else. He's not doing it right, you know. And so Jacob is struck by this; it catches his attention. But he has another priority here in this situation, and what is that? I'm trying to find out who they are. Yeah. Okay. And he's got to figure out where he is. He obviously is not sufficiently close to Heron to know really, you know, where he is at this point. So he, he needs to uh, he needs to figure out some things. So he goes up to him and he asks him, 
where they're from. He calls them brothers, which is, of course, just a, a common greeting in this case, uh, and, and, and just a friendly greeting. He's greeting them quite friendly, even though he treats them uh, in maybe not quite so friendly a way here in a minute. But he, he greets them in a friendly way, uh, and he asks them where they're from, and, uh, and they say to him that they're from Karen. Now, just kind of put yourself in Jacob's sandals for a minute, you know. You're many miles and many days away from Beersheba. And you set out from Beersheba to get to here. Okay? And now you come to this, you know, you're out here somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And you're kind of hoping you're getting there. And you come up and you encounter these shepherds and you ask them where they're from. And they say they're from here. And what are you feeling? Yeah. Okay. I'm feeling a sense of relief and excitement. You know what it's like when you when you go on a long trip, and you, you drive a long way, and you know, and, and uh, uh, particularly, I know I, I do this a lot at night when I'm when I, I, I like to do a lot of night traveling, and uh, and we have done a lot of night traveling. And one of the things that I always experience at night when I'm traveling, it's been a long drive, and I'm trying to get to a city. And, and those of you who do that are familiar with this experience of this sensation of when you finally crest a hill or whatever and off in the distance you can see the lights of the city and there's that sense of ah, there they are you know now I just got to get there you know and so so here is Jacob who has been on the road for many days by this point and he's tired and he's hot and he's dirty and he, and he left home under very un, unpleasant circumstances and, and he left home fearing for his life. Uh, and he's been separated from his parents and particularly now from his mother with whom he is quite close. And he has no idea when he's going to see him again. Can you imagine all the stress that this guy has been under for the last number of days? Uh, stress which is self-induced, of course. But nevertheless, this guy has really, really, you know, the stress inside him has been building up over a period of a considerable amount of time. Even, even in light of what encountered at Bethel, he's still going through a lot of stress. And finally, he arrives at Bethel, I mean at Herod. Finally, something is starting to fall in place, and he begins to get this sense of relief and this sense of satisfaction when he discovers that these guys are from Haran. Okay. And so then he asked about Laban, his mother's brother, and he discovers that these guys are not only from Haran, but that they know Laban, and that Laban is doing well. And then they tell him something else, which is what? Okay. Here's Rebecca. You know, she's apparently some distance away yet. And here comes Rebecca, and she's bringing her father's sheep. Rachel, I mean, yes, Rachel, thank you. Here comes Rachel, okay. And, uh, now, at this point, what is Jacob thinking? Okay. He may be, you know, like I say, you know, at some point he goes back and he, and he reflects on this and thinks about this and realizes how similar this is. But, well, I mean, in addition to fleeing your sheep and his brother, what was the other reason for this trip? Find a wife, okay. And 
you know, you may remember this from your days when you were single, you know, uh, every woman's a possibility, <laughs> you know, <laughs> every woman you look at and go, oh, well, I wonder, you know, and, and, and he discovers that, you know, of course, he has to marry within the clan, and here's a woman within the clan. Now, he's seen her from a distance, so he doesn't know how good she looks at this point, but he's soon to discover she's a pretty hot lady, you know. So, uh, so once again, we are, our minds go back, uh, as we were just mentioning a minute ago, our minds go back to what happened back there in chapter 24 with, with Abraham's servant, and we see these striking parallels, okay? That they come to the well, the woman arrives at the well, it's all very timely. What, what we realize here is this custom that Jacob really didn't understand and apparently didn't even approve of. It's oftentimes the case when we go into a foreign place and we experience their culture. We, we often, and their customs, we often are critical of them, aren't we? <laughs> we don't understand why they do things the way they do. <clears throat> but it's that very custom that God is providentially using to bring these two people together. So even though Jacob doesn't understand the custom, doesn't even really approve of the custom, it's that very custom that God is providentially using to bring these two people together. And, and we see these parallels, and we can't help but go, yeah, God is working in this situation just like he did with Isaac and Rebecca. But there are also some striking differences in the way this story unfolds. What are the differences between this encounter at the well and the one in chapter 24? That's the first obvious thing, isn't it? There's no prayer. When the servant arrives at the well, the first thing he does is pray. And what does he pray for? Okay. He wants God to make it successful. And how does he know that it is successful? How does he ask to know? Okay, so he gave a specific sign, didn't he? He gave a specific sign. He says, God, have the woman do this and so. And we, when we talked about that, we talked about the particular sign that he chose. Why did he choose the sign he chose? Remember what we said? It wasn't a normal thing to do, was it? Okay, okay it wasn't. Yeah, it wouldn't have been normal for her. It was a hard task. What does all this reveal? The personality and character. Okay, so what the servant is doing, not only has he come in prayer, but he is he is wanting to be discerning of the character of the woman. Okay? Now, all of that is completely devoid in the story of Jacob. Do you notice that? Jacob comes, there's no thought about God. There's no thought about prayer. And he apparently hasn't given any thought at all to this woman's character. Okay. Well, if you study if you study shepherds a little bit, you'll find out they're a pretty rough bunch of people. <laughs> so that the fact that she's a shepherd is not necessarily shepherdess is not necessarily an affirmation of her character. <laughs> okay. She is a hard worker, apparently. Yes, she is a hard worker. That is true. 
but there were a number of things that we saw reflected in the in the character of Rebecca in the way she responded and the things that she did. So we don't get any of that with Jacob. Well, even though we've said that, one thing we also know is it appears that he wasn't really ready. And you might say that he's thinking, okay, when I get closer to the situation, then I'll pray, then I'll look for this thing, that thing, thing. You know, maybe we don't know. But he's not, he's not ready. Uh, well, that's a, that's a good observation. Yeah, very possible here. He just caught off guard. By well, in, in verse uh, verse seven, where he's trying to tell these guys the right way to do it, you know, to me, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so here's Rachel, but, but yeah, you guys are doing it right, and he's really focused on that, trying to get them the right instructions, and so the fact that this girl is there is, is not foremost in his mind. Well, I would suggest that maybe it is. Uh, but that is a good observation. You know, at this point, he's telling these guys how to do their job. You know, And I think it might reveal a couple things about Jacob at this point. One is, uh, Jacob's inherited a little bit of his mother's traits. <laughs> he's a take charge, run the show type of character. Okay? I don't know if he's type A, but he's certainly a take charge type of guy, and there's a little bit obvious, obviously, here. there's a little bit of arrogance to go into a situation like this where you don't know the circumstances, you don't know the people, and start telling them how to run their business. You know, there's there's just, there's just a little bit of arrogance there on his part. You know, but on the flip side, and I mentioned we see both positive and less positive things about Jacob. On the flip side, one thing we see about Jacob is. This is an ambitious, industrious guy. He knows how, and, and this will become more and more obvious as we go through the story of this whole sojourn there in Haran. This guy really knows how to do business well. And he's all about doing business well. And he's all about raising livestock well. And he knows how to do it. And he knows how to do it well, and he cares about that. And in, in Jacob's favor, that's, those are good qualities, aren't they? So he's, he's put off a little bit here by these guys who appear to be, to his at least from his perception, a little lazy. And that turns him on. Okay. Uh, but then the second thing, so part of it is just he wants to see things done right and he thinks people ought to do things right and, you know, and, and so that's, there's that and there's there. But on the other part, on the other hand, and several commentators suggest this, that really this whole thing about Rachel really, really is foremost in his mind because what he really wants to do is what? Show off for her. Well, before that. And the other three. Get the other guys out of there. <laughs> Get them out of there. Now, I think what's going on, personally, uh, maybe reading between the lines here a little bit, but when we get down later in the story, we see that he starts weeping. Remember that? He, he kisses her and he starts to weep. And raises his voice and starts to weep. Okay. I think that what's going on here to some degree is talk about the stress he's under, I think he feels that building at this point. And he knows that when he interacts with Rachel, he may lose it. And so, you know, he's a typical guy. He doesn't, he doesn't want the other guys seeing this. So, i got to get these guys out of here. Now, he's not successful, of course, but uh, possibly that's, you know, that may be something that's going on here, is that he, he wants to get the other guys out of here because you know, Rachel's coming and he wants to interact with her. She's his relative. 
he wants to interact with her and he feels this emotional pressure for her building inside her. Uh, Dave, can you raise your hand a minute? That's what I was going to ask if it was before you said it was possibly trying to get her together so he could get into David's family. He didn't know yeah. who the family was, so he's probably wanting to make sure he has a good impression with Rachel. Yeah, we get invited in. Now, when, when the sermon recognizes, okay, God is in this thing and God has done this thing, what is his response in chapter 24? Yeah. He falls on his face and worships. Now, when Jacob recognizes what's going on here, what does he do? flexes his muscles, doesn't he? <laughs> he flexes his muscles. He's, he's kind of, somebody already said it here, I think, he's kind of showing off a little bit. You know? uh, I, hope, I hope we're not reading too much into the passage here, but, but he goes over and he moves this stone. Now, uh, I don't think there's anything supernatural going on here. You know, I, I, don't think he's, I don't think there's any superhuman strength that's employed here. Uh, there are three shepherds there. They're waiting for all the others to come because it is the custom to wait and we move the stone together. Okay. It's obviously, the scripture points out, a very large stone. Okay. It's not necessarily a stone that is impossible for a strong man to move, but it's obviously a stone that, by common consent, they agreed, this is a lot easier if we have several of us doing it. Okay. So the custom is we pitch in together and we do this. Okay. Now, when we keep in mind the fact that although being a shepherd or a shepherdess is, uh, you know, it's dirty work and it's hard work and, you know, and uh, it's demanding work in many ways, it's not necessarily the kind of work that typically requires a great deal of physical exertion. Okay. So oftentimes we have very young people who are shepherds. For example, who? David, when he's a little boy, right? He's a shepherd. He's tending his dad's sheep, okay? And in fact, they're kind of thought of as being, in many ways, not mature enough to do the bigger stuff because when David goes to visit his brothers at the battle, you know, what is their response? Go back to the sheep. You're not big enough for this. You can't handle this. You're not strong enough for this, okay? So shepherds oftentimes were young. I don't know if you think about that when you encounter the Christmas story and you think about the angels appearing to the shepherd, but they were very possibly very young men, maybe teenagers. Well, they could have been even younger than that. But they were apparently, uh, oftentimes at least, shepherds were not you know, full-grown, blown adults. Okay, Oftentimes they were, but not always. And also, of course, we see several times in Scripture, that, like it, as we do here, and as we see in the story of uh, Moses when he encounters uh, his father-in-law's uh, daughters, they also are shepherdesses. Okay, so it's also the kind of work that women uh, that women would do. So it's not necessarily particularly uh, demanding work as far as physical strength is concerned. Uh, so it's quite possible that these guys aren't really, you know. Uh, all, you know, the kind of guys that you see on, you know, on the cover of a, you know, some men's workout magazine or something, you know. Uh, these guys are not, you know, the bodybuilder type. They're just, you know, common, ordinary shepherds, probably kind of young guys. 
and 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 maybe they just kind of decide, you know, this is really too hard for one or two guys to do. We're just gonna we're just gonna wait. We'll all get together and we'll make this thing. Well, David comes in, and by this time, of course, he's fairly older. He's considerably older, and and he's fairly mature, and he's obviously quite strong. And he just gets in there, and he moves that stone by himself. I don't think it's superhuman strength, but I do think in this case the adrenaline is pumping. <laughs> okay, this guy, he's got you know things are going well right now at this particular moment. He's he's where he wants to be. He's made contact. He's making contact with the family. Things are starting to fall into place. This good-looking woman is showing up, you know, and the adrenaline is pumping, and he just goes over there and he just grabs that stone and he just moves it out of the way. Because that's really how you need to impress the women, right? You just kind of flex the muscles and show them, you know, show the brute strength and show them what a guy you are. And it's so different from the way the servant approached things. And then, and then it's not—it's not the woman, or excuse me, uh, yeah, it's not the woman who waters the servants' animals, but it's rather Jacob who waters uh, Laban's sheep. And, and here, once again, now we see a positive aspect of Jacob's character. And he, may, he puts himself in the position of a servant. Now, maybe, again, he's trying to impress Rachel. I don't know. But it does point out that they are Laban's sheep. Okay? And so it's like he realizes these are not Rachel's sheep. These are Laban's sheep. And what he's doing in some ways, he's ingratiating himself to Laban. He's making himself a servant to Laban. And so he waters Laban's sheep. And then ultimately, finally, once he's done... He goes over and kisses Rachel, and uh, he lifts up his voice and weeps. And uh, you know, sometimes we really struggle when we read these things from our perspective of the 20th century in our culture. But you know, because I can just about imagine uh, what would happen in our culture if a guy if a guy just kind of walks up and kisses a woman, in, you know, in a situation like that. But but obviously, this is not a romantic kiss. This is, uh, you know, in any way at all. It's it's the kind of a greeting, and we'll see Laban do it here in next week when we look at the story of Laban. Uh, it's the kind of greeting that one family member would give to another. She's probably thinking, wow, he's strong and he's sensitive. <laughs> I mean, the best of both worlds, right? Yeah. Uh, so he comes up to her and, and he kisses her as if to say, you are my relative. And then, and, and then he lifts up his voice and he weeps, you know. And at this point, yeah, she's going, she may be going, he's sensitive, and she may be going, he's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what she's doing here. Um, but it is interesting to me. Why does he weep? Yeah, I think he's just overwhelmed by it. Remember, we talked about all the stress that's been building since that whole deception thing with his dad. You can imagine how much stress that put on his life, you know. Uh, but all the stress that he's been under for all these many days has been building and building and building. And all of a sudden he's here and, and he's at Heron and things look like they're working out. And here's this really good looking woman who's a possibility, you know. And it's just, 
and, and he's just overwhelmed by the goodness of things. But again, it strikes me the difference between how the servant responds when he is overwhelmed by the goodness of the situation and the way Jacob responds when he's overwhelmed by the goodness of the situation. Because when the servant is overwhelmed by the goodness of the situation, by God's favor in his life, and he recognizes and he seizes God's favor, and he seizes God's providence, he falls on his face and he worships the Lord. And then later when he's in Laban and Bethuel's house, and once again he encounters God's favor again, he expresses his praise and his thanks to God. But, did you notice Jacob doesn't do that? There's this kind of emotional release, you know, and he just starts weeping. But there's none of the worship. And this is just goes to illustrate more of what I said earlier, that Bethel doesn't transform you overnight. We're not completely transformed as Bethel. And it's going to be a long time in Jacob's life before that happens. Yes. And Abraham and his servant had gone through that long process. That's right. Yeah. yeah. They were much older and they had gone through that long process. That's right. But what struck me about that was I thought, how satisfying it is to us when we experience the goodness and the favor of God and we are able to worship. You see, when, when really good things happen to people who don't know it's God doing it in their life, what do they do? Okay, they oftentimes take credit. But what else? What do they do? They don't have anybody to be thankful to. They don't have anybody to be thankful to. And so oftentimes they'll take credit. And they may feel very good about it. They may be overwhelmed with good feelings. But there's no satisfaction in that, is there? I mean, it's very pleasant. It's a very pleasant experience. But isn't it a precious thing for us if we're really tuned in and we realize when these really great good things are happening in our life that they're coming from the hand of a good and gracious and loving God and we are able to respond in worship like Abraham's servant does? It's so, it's so different. And it's so much more satisfying to be able to say, Wow! God, you did that. Yeah, we have this phrase that we sometimes use. It's a God thing. You've heard that phrase. I heard it yesterday. I mentioned that phone call that I got yesterday. And the guy who, uh, who was talking with me was describing something that happened. To me. And, uh, and it was something that had been a long time coming. And he never really had, I don't think, ever really expected it to happen this way. And he said, it was a God thing. You know? What he was saying was, you know, this was beyond us. It was outside of our ability. And God just did this. And it's so much more satisfying when we can see this is God's handiwork. And, and, and so it behooves us, it, it, it challenges us to really be tuned in. You see, the problem with Jacob is not that God wasn't providentially working in his life, 
but it's that all these things are unfolding and he's really not, in spite of Bethel, at this point, he's not really aware that it's happening in his life. And so he has nobody to give thanks to. And, and so in our lives, and, and, and in my life, if, if I can just learn to be more in tune so that when God is working and moving and providentially directing and sovereignly accomplishing things in my life and in my circumstances, instead of just going, well, that was an interesting turn of events, if I go, wow, that's God. And then if I can just turn at that moment and worship the Lord, that's so much more satisfying. Isn't that so much more fulfilling? And then, and then the joy and the pleasure of the good favor that we're experiencing is enriched even more by this wonderful relationship that we go on to experience with God. Well, uh, as we'll see, uh, as we see here at the end, Rachel runs off to tell Dad, and the story begins to unfold from there. And uh, so we'll pick that up.